our um, sermon text this morning comes from 1 Peter. Please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll start in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is what God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they had formerly not obeyed, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought, brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And down in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange was happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glory, glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will become of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let us who suffer according to God's will entrust our souls to the faithful creator while doing good. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord, giving for our flourishing. It means something. Do not be surprised. That's how Peter starts this. Don't be surprised. Usually, if someone says, don't be surprised, doesn't mean something good is following. So, yeah. If a friend comes to you and says, hey man, just a heads up, don't be surprised if, you know, fill in the blank, usually means something bad is coming. But Peter is telling us not to be surprised about suffering. And suffering usually is something bad. But in this case, as with this whole letter, Peter is building our hope in the gospel. So what does that mean? Why? Why do we need to suffer? Well, Peter has been building a picture throughout this whole letter of the Christian identity. Over the past several weeks, 
He, we've covered issues that he, he writes about in his letter, marriage, holiness, stewardship. But through the whole letter, the theme of suffering has been running. The theme that the people of God will suffer. So why is it that suffering is an essential part of the Christian identity? It's not an idea that's unique to Peter. Every epistle talks about suffering as a necessity. And the reason for that, the reason that it's one of the most common ideas in the New Testament is because the very nature of what it means to be a Christian necessitates that we suffer. When Christ saves us, he brings us out of the kingdom of sin and darkness, and he sets us free from our sin. But we're not simply set free for our own purposes. We're brought into the family of God. As we've said so many times, the words from the second chapter of Peter, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. But what does it mean to be God's people? And why does it mean that we have to suffer? So you see, when Christ saves us, when he came into the world, he did so as a conquering king, coming to set us free from the power of sin. But he did so in a somewhat, probably totally unexpected way. He did so through his own suffering and self-sacrifice. He did so through the cross. Christ's suffering was not weakness. We just sung about the power of the cross. Christ's suffering was power. Through that power, he defeated the forces of the world. It says in verse 18 of chapter 3 that we just read, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ suffered so we could be reconciled to God. And now, as the people of God, you and I must suffer as we put to death our flesh and as we are made alive in the spirit. This means that we're switching alliances when we enter the family of God. We are once slaves to the kingdom of darkness. And not only that, we were actively at war with in rebellion against God. But Christ redeemed our traitorous hearts, and we've been given a new allegiance. This means that as individuals and as the church, we are at power, we are at war with the powers of sin and evil. There is no neutral ground. Christ suffered to give us freedom, to reconcile us to God. And now you and I must suffer as we put the flesh to death. And this is what it means, in part, as we speak of sharing in the suffering of Christ, as it says in verse 13. We must now suffer for righteousness, as it says in verse 14 of chapter 3. If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And down in verse 17, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Christ suffered in his righteousness for those of us who were unrighteous. And now that we're clothed in his righteousness, as we seek to live holy lives, we must suffer for the sake of righteousness. But why does being righteous mean suffering is necessary? Why are the two linked together? See, suffering for righteousness is required because the gospel's message is one of hope and joy for those of us who are being saved. But for those who aren't, for those who are passing away, 
whose eyes have not been opened by God's grace. It is a message that seems like unspeakable hate. The world will reject that message, and they will persecute the church for it. In the book of Acts, the very first martyr of the church, Stephen, was murdered, stoned to death for simply preaching the good news of the gospel. Christ said to his disciples that the world would hate them just as it hated him. Every disciple, every apostle aside from John was martyred for the faith, suffering violent deaths at the hands of persecutors. The church must suffer because the righteousness of the church is an offense to an unrighteous world. The reality is that suffering is the norm for the Christian faith. And that you and I live in a very rare, extraordinary time and place where that suffering is at a minimum. It's fairly limited. And now even though you and I don't, ex don't experience the same level of persecution that most Christians do, we should expect to suffer. And there are two primary ways in which we should expect to suffer. Firstly, as we make war against the powers of sin and darkness, we should expect the world to hate us because we are a reminder to them that they are dead in their sins. Sinners don't want to acknowledge their sins. They don't want to admit that they're in rebellion against God, that they owe their submission to him. And you and I, we're no different. We're once the same, but Christ has rescued us and our holy lives are unbearably offensive to those who are perishing. It's not people we're at war with. It's Satan's power. It's the sin that holds them in bondage. In verse 16 of chapter 3, Peter says that even as these people persecute us, they're going to feel silly as they persecute us for doing good. It's not going to be something they can help. There will be a natural and irresistible tension. If we live holy lives... Those under the power of sin and darkness will come against us. As it is our nature to suffer, it is their nature to persecute the people of God. They can't help it. The wickedness of the flesh hates the work of the Holy Spirit within God's people. Secondly, we should expect to suffer as we struggle against our sin, against our flesh, and against the external powers of darkness that tempt us. This is true, because even though Christ has redeemed you, until your redemption is fully brought to consummation in heaven, you will be plagued by your flesh, which is the remnants of your rebellion against a holy God. You and I are torn creatures. We now fully belong to Christ, and we long for the things of God, but part of us, our flesh, still longs for the things of the world. Through the inner working of the Holy Spirit, you and I are being made more and more alive and free from the power of sin in the flesh. While our flesh is dying, this is what it says in verse 18, dying in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. But we won't be rid of this flesh until we're dead. And until then, we have to daily battle our sinful longings and we're often going to fail. But we have hope because Jesus also suffered temptation. 
And unlike you and I, Christ suffered and resisted every temptation that he faced. It says in Hebrews 2, 17 through 18, Therefore, he had been to be made flesh like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Christ himself suffered under the temptation of sin, resisting it so that you and I could be reconciled to God. This means that when we fail in our fight with sin, even though we seek to avoid suffering, even though we seek to avoid rejection from the world, we can have hope because Christ did not fail. Christ accepted ultimate rejection and suffering, even his death, so that we could be reconciled to God. Now, it may seem strange to talk about our struggles with sin as a form of suffering, but that is exactly how the apostles and writers of the New Testament describe it. In Romans 7, the Apostle Paul kind of speaks of his suffering and angst that he experiences in fighting his sin. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep doing. No, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. Down in verse 24, you really you feel it. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But in the next chapter, <clears throat> Paul goes on to give us the hope, the same hope that Peter has mentioned already, that though we suffer in the flesh, we're being made alive in the spirit. Suffering in the flesh, then, suffering as a Christian is not a punishment. It's not a burden. Instead, it is the new normal. It is a unique and sometimes severe mercy from God, given, us to, given to us by the Father through Christ. Because in our fight with sin, in our suffering, Christ is changing us to be like him. Saved by the blood of Christ, you and I must now daily rely on him, walking in repentance, confessing our sin, turning from it, and placing our faith in the work of Christ for our salvation. Now this, this work, this daily repentance and suffering, it's war against the sin of our flesh and against the world. It's an act of sedition. Sedition, by definition, is bold and open conduct or speech that is rebellious against the established order. In bold and open conduct or speech that is rebellious against the established order. Some of you, especially those of you with a little more gray hair, may remember the show Hogan's Heroes. Now, it's a silly show in some aspects, but it has serious moments. It's the story of a group of allied prisoners held captive in Nazi Germany. But the thing is, they aren't really prisoners. You see, long ago, the good guys had figured out how to escape from this prison. But instead, they decide to stay behind as prisoners so that they can fight undercover against the Nazi regime. They stay actively behind enemy lines 
suffering, sometimes having casualties so that they can fight the enemy. Brothers and sisters, we're behind enemy lines. We're not prisoners because Christ has set us free. He's won our freedom. But as we remain in this world, we must be seditious to the powers of king, in the kingdom of darkness and of our own flesh. In the days of the early church, the Roman Empire considered following Christ to be a formal crime of sedition. It was a threat to the Roman Empire. That was because the beliefs of the faith went actively against so many of the values that the Roman Empire stood for. It challenged, it directly assaulted the gods of their culture. We need to ask ourselves, are our lives seditious? Do we war against the world's wickedness and against the gods of our culture? Are you making war against your own sin? Against the powers of sin and darkness? Pursuing holiness is an act of sedition against the powers of sin and darkness. We must fight our sin, and when we do, we will suffer. We will suffer from the pain of our sin, as Paul speaks of, and the persecution from the outside world. This is what it means to bear our cross. You and I are told to take up the cross, to follow Christ, cru to crucify our flesh daily. Only through suffering and daily death to the powers of our sinful longings will you and I be made into the image of Christ. And through this suffering, we have communion with Christ's suffering. Through this suffering, you and I are growing closer in communion with our Savior and more at odds with the world and the flesh. This is what it says in verse 13 of chapter 4. Rejoice as you share in Christ's suffering, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So what does it look like practically when we suffer? What does it mean to not be surprised by suffering? What does it look like to be seditious to the powers of sin and darkness? Ultimately, it means as Christians, we cannot leave a single part of our lives free from the suffering of the cross. Through the truth of scripture, the fellowship of the church, and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, you and I must seek to crucify every aspect of the flesh that we find present in our lives. Ultimately, this is the call of discipleship. Every sinful attitude and affection must be subject to this process. And we could spend a lifetime looking at and talking about what this means because it is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. It is the essence of what it means to pursue holiness. The famous quote from Bonhoeffer speaks of this as, a, as what it means to pursue discipleship. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. This morning, I wanted to limit our discussion of what it looks like to suffer against our sin to one particular issue. 
that is common and relevant to our struggle with sin and our battle with the kingdoms of darkness. Sexuality. I wanted to speak about sexuality and materialism, the two predominant idols of our culture. I didn't think one was enough of a challenge for an intern. But for the sake of time, I've narrowed it down. Sexuality. I want to focus on the specific topic, not because I'm trying to single out any particular sin, but because this topic sets a solid example of what it looks like when we suffer in making war against our flesh and against the gods of our culture. In our current day, sexuality is one of the foremost gods of our culture. And as such, it is one that as believers, we should be particularly seditious towards. Everything about sexuality as it is practiced in the world flies in the face of what the Lord's intentions for it were. The belief that our sexuality is ultimately ours, to use in whatever way we choose, whatever feels best, this is a severe corruption of a good gift from God. As with all gifts from God, to reclaim the purposes that he had for it, we have to start to reorder our desires and our relationships to that gift so that they line up with the commands of God in scripture. So how do we do that with sexuality? And why does this cause suffering? Well, let's look at two examples. First, the data doesn't lie. There's a good number of men in this room and some women who are deeply and painfully addicted to pornography. Let's not deceive ourselves. Porn has become mainstream in the last 20 to 30 years. It moved from the back room of a seedy movie rental store or a magazine rack to the convenience of your smartphone. And neither this church nor any other has been safe from that assault. Most of you, many of you, fell into this devastating addiction before you reached high school. And you find that despite your love for Christ, you can't seem to find the freedom you deeply long for. So you hide it away. The shame is too great. You're stuck. This is where the cross comes in. Freedom from the flesh can only be found when we put it to death. And this will require suffering. If you're here today and addicted to pornography, you need to know that you can be free. But only through dragging sin into the light and killing it. By the power of the Holy Spirit and the blood of Christ. Now we do this by opening up about our sin, confessing it to the Lord and trusted brothers and sisters. This is suffering. It won't be easy. Some of you are due for, due for painful conversations with your spouse. Most of you will need brothers and sisters to walk alongside of you. There's a beauty in this. Through this suffering, you are being made whole. Not because you're earning your salvation. Christ has already done that.
you will be made whole. Because as you find new life in Christ, you will find new life in Christ as you put your flesh to death. Did feel this emotional when I wrote it. It's getting nice and quiet in here. Let's dig a little deeper. Example number two. Our culture is currently in the middle of a reckoning over sexual identity. In the secular world, they're arguing on the more extreme ends of what it even means to be a man or a woman. The church finds itself, once again, having to struggle against the forces of the culture as we seek to maintain a Christian sexual ethic, an ethic that God has called us to in his scripture. Again, the data does not lie. There are probably some of you here today who are struggling with your sexual identity. And I don't want to make light of that struggle or belittle it because it's a real struggle. It's real pain. If you're someone here who experiences, experiences sexual attraction to another gender, to your own gender, or you're confused about your own gender, it's vital that you hear what I'm saying. This desire, this struggle, just like pornography, it comes from your flesh. It is not who you are. If you have come to repentance and faith to Christ, your identity is in Christ. And therefore, you must fight against these desires, which are sins and not how God made you. These desires come from the corrupting powers of sin, and fighting them will mean suffering. Right now, my even, even suggesting that you should deny these desires is considered violent by those who would affirm such a lifestyle. But I say this to you in love, crucifying the flesh is an act of violence. If Christ has called you and purchased you with his blood, you must fight the desires of the flesh. This is suffering. Affirming sin, making peace with it, will only lead to death. Killing sin, walking in repentance, nailing it to the cross, will lead to true and eternal life. These two issues are kind of easy ones to single out and to focus on. But we have to apply the scriptures to every aspect of sexuality. Cohabitation, no-fault divorce, adultery, using our sexuality as a tool to manipulate or control others. All of these things are a misuse of how God made us. And the truth is that none of our hands are clean. We have all fallen short. And we must struggle against sin's power. And as we struggle, as we make war, the world will persecute us. The two are inextricably linked. Your seditious holiness will make the world hate you. I don't even think I need to explain this too much. Some of you may have been mocked for your commitment to your marriage. Many of you have likely been through unique pain and suffering as you broke off sexual relationships that dishonored the Lord. Some of you have faced the world's rage as you rejected their standards for sexuality. You may have been labeled as outdated or bigoted. 
Some of you have lost deep and meaningful... (sighs) You've lost relationships. You will be persecuted. The world will reject you. I'm reminded of a stanza from the old hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus, the world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back. This is just one area. One example. One sin. There are innumerable others. Isn't that nice? And as we make war, as we suffer, both through our struggle with sin and the persecution of the world, you and I are going to become less and less at ease in this world. That's why, as it mentions in uh, verse 13 of chapter 4, we're looking forward to the glory of Christ that's coming, even now as we suffer, as we share in his sufferings. What is his purpose, though, in making us suffer? Well, as he sanctifies us, he allows us to suffer because in his deep and abiding love for us, he will not stand to see us give our love to things less worthy than himself. And through suffering, he is beginning to set us free from our loves of the world. I've mentioned a few times now the need to reorder our affections. Augustine, one of the church fathers, coined the idea of disordered loves. Disordered loves. You see, when God created us, he made us in his image with all of our love centered on him as our good and holy creator. And all the blessings that he gave us were means by which we could enjoy him, always ultimately turning our affection back to him. When sin entered in, it disordered our loves so that instead of using God's gifts properly, we made them false gods that we worshiped instead of him. As the people of God, We have been redeemed from the curse of sin, but we need help reorienting our loves. God has not left us to work this out ourselves. By allowing us to suffer, by ordaining our suffering, God is graciously doing what you and I cannot do. Through suffering, through the fiery trial that comes to test us, We can rejoice because the Lord is reordering our loves. The rejection and suffering we face at the hands of a mocking world will begin to help free us from our pride, our desires for power, glory, and our attachments to the world. As we suffer in our battle against sin, we start to see that the Father is setting us free from the idols that have captivated our hearts, the gods we have looked to for salvation, that could never save us. Through suffering, we're actually starting to learn to trust God. You see, one of the greatest underlying issues in our rebellion, in our flesh, is that we distrust the Father. The first sins and all the ones that followed after were somewhat based in the belief that God never had our best interest in mind, that we needed to look out for ourselves. And so instead of using the good gifts that the Father gave us, we held on to them and we perverted them. But our faithful creator is so gracious 
that he saves us from our rebellion. And through suffering, he is setting us free from the idols that hold our hearts captive. So don't be surprised when you suffer. Trust in the work that the Lord is doing. Entrust your soul to a faithful creator. Christ suffered both temptation and persecution for our salvation. As his disciples, we must embrace the cross that the Lord has given us. You know, there's some irony, something a little bit funny, that it's Peter who's writing this letter. Because I don't think anyone was more surprised by suffering in the Gospels than Peter. So if you look at Peter, he's not into the idea. The passage we read this morning, as Christ is explaining that it's necessary that he would suffer for our salvation, Peter takes the living God aside, who has just confessed to be the Savior of the world, and he rebukes him. It's like, God, Jesus, this is not the plan. Peter's looking for the kingdom of God, but he doesn't see it in the suffering of Christ. Peter shuts his mouth, gets in line, listens to Jesus. When the guards come to take Jesus away, Peter is still not ready to suffer. He acts violently to try to stop what must be done. And then just a little while later, to avoid suffering, Peter denies his Lord. How does Peter write this letter? How does Peter say, don't be surprised by suffering? Peter had encountered the risen Lord. See, Peter made a mistake. He thought, like we often do, that the kingdom of God will come through power, through force. But Peter learned that it was through the cross through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that we would be saved. Peter himself was promised that he would bear a cross, a physical one. And Peter is telling these believers, believers who were actively facing persecution, don't be surprised. This is how the kingdom of God comes. It is through suffering that we are being made alive. This is not something you need to be afraid of. I think right now, as we look at the world around us and we become more concerned from the tension that we feel, feel as the world doesn't hold to the standards that we hold as Christians, we don't need to be afraid. The kingdom of God comes through the suffering of the church. That is how he has ordained it. We can have courage. Again, you and I will likely not be martyred for the faith. But I think it's helpful to look to so many who have gone before us. So I want to leave you today with some words from Ignatius, who was an early church father and a bishop in Antioch, and he was martyred for the faith. And they wanted to make an example of him. So they took the trouble of carting him from Antioch to Rome. And as he was in this cart being shipped to his death, he wrote a bunch of letters to the church to encourage them. And this is an excerpt from something he wrote shortly before he was killed by lions in the Roman Colosseum. He says, Now I begin to be a disciple. I care nothing for visible or invisible things, so that I may but win Christ. Let the cross and fire, let the companies of wild beasts let the breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, the grinding of the whole body, all of the malice of the devil, 
let it all come upon me. Be it so. Only may I win Christ. Will you pray with me? Gracious Father, you are good to us. Your children who you have saved from the powers of sin and darkness. Through your son, Jesus Christ, who suffered, we have been saved. And now through suffering that we experience, through persecution, you're making us into the image of your son, Jesus. Give us the strength not to be afraid, not to draw back, but to trust our souls to you, our faithful creator. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen.